You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Psalm 6, like the Psalms we've seen before it, 3, 4, 5, is what students of the Bible call a lament. There are three main kinds of psalms. There are psalms of praise, psalms of lament, and psalms of thanks. And we typically think of praise and thanks when we think about the psalms. And just about every psalm of the 150 in the Bible has some elements of praise and thanks in it. However, the most common kind of psalm is the psalm of lament, not the psalm of praise or thanks, which at first may seem strange to us. But if we pause about it and think for a minute about the world that we live in, tainted with sin, about the lives that we live, it's fitting that in a fallen age with the kind of sinners that we are, surrounded by the kind of sinners that other people are, that psalms of lament would be the most common in the Bible. Sometimes the psalms of praise are called psalms of orientation. All seems to be right in the world for us. Our lives are ordered, and so we orient on God, as we should, with praise. And then, the most common kind of psalm, the lament, is called the psalm of disorder, disorientation. All doesn't feel right with our lives. Our lives feel like a mess, in chaos, disordered. We're distressed or pressured in some way. We need need saving from our enemies, or we need forgiveness from our own sins, And so these are psalms of disorientation. The last category then, the psalms of thanks, are thought of as psalms of reorientation. We cry out to God, and he has answered us. And so in a psalm of thanks, we thank him for it. This is appropriate. Sometimes we cry out to him, and he answers, and we forget to thank him at the end. And the Bible means for us to thank God when he's brought us some deliverance, when he's been our savior. The glory of the psalms of praise is that God deserves our praise. He deserves for us to see him as God and his Lord at all times, in all circumstances, whether it all feels right in our little worlds or not. The glory of a lament is that despite our pain and our difficulty and our uncertainty and our struggle, we turn Godward in a lament. The hope is that we've turned Godward. We haven't turned elsewhere. This is the hope hope and glory of a lament. It's in lament, in the times of trial and difficulty, that we most see him to be our greatest treasure. And then in the Psalms of thanks, the glory there is that God has acted on our behalf. Not only is he worthy of our praise as our Lord, and not only have we cried out to him and found him to be our greatest treasure in lament, but he's saved us. He's rescued us, and so we see him as our Savior in those psalms of thanks. And as glorious as it is to sing psalms of praise and thanks, it is fitting in our world, in the lives that we live, that laments would be the most common kind of psalm, the psalms of disorientation. And here in Psalm 6, that's what we have. This is disorientation. We saw the same. This is four in a row now. Psalm three was this, four was this, five was this. So six psalms in now to the book, we have four psalms of lament. And as with the previous three, this psalm includes a little note at the top, you'll see, saying that it's from David, who was the king of Israel. There's also a note there about Shimonis. 
You guys all know what Shemineth is, right? We're not sure what Shemineth is. It probably is some kind of musical note or liturgical term. It means the eighth. And in music, there's an octave that has eight notes. So maybe it's related somehow. It's the same label that's on Psalm 12. And Psalm 12 and Psalm 6 have very similar length. And so maybe they knew that if, oh, if this is according to Shemineth, then you sing a certain song that goes with this psalm. Shemineth is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 15 as what the, the musicians were playing according to. That's what that note is. But with this psalm, it's hard circumstances in David's life, whether they're related to Absalom, his son's rebellion against him or not that we talked about a few weeks ago. We don't know. But what has led him here is that he sees his sin. He doesn't say that he's blameless in this psalm. He's aware of his sin, and he cries out to God for rescuing from his foes. So some label Psalm 6 as the first of the penitential psalms. That There's a, a group of psalms where the psalmist is repentant. He's penitential. And that's true in a small degree here in Psalm 6. But the major note struck is that he has enemies who are sinning against him. That's the major note here in the psalm. And you'll see that David cries out in despair in verses 1 to 7. And then there's this really amazing change of key. I don't know if you heard that as Michael read the psalm. There's an amazing change with verse 8. Verses 8 to 10 are a burst of confidence in the midst of his disorientation and his lament. So uh, however much we may label this as a penitential psalm, as some do, David is not only a sinner in Psalm 6. This is a really important point for us this morning. This is not like Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, it is all repentance. He complains of nobody else sinning against him. He just talks about his own sin. That is not the case in Psalm 6. David also has been sinned against. Foes have arisen against him. Sinners have made David's sin an occasion to sin against David. And so he also stands in the shoes here, not only of sinner, but also is what we might call victim. A very popular word. And so Psalm 6 provides us with a pattern, not only for when we're penitent, but also for how someone who is languishing under difficult circumstances might move in a God-honoring way from victimhood to true victory. That's what we're going to see in this psalm here, in Psalm 6. So let me... Let me highlight here three parts of Psalm 6 this morning. And these are what lessons that God might have for us here, especially when we find ourselves in situations of trouble and distress and when it's unclear how much or how little of it is our own making and how much of it is owing to the evil of others against us. So here this morning in Psalm 6, we have three lessons for when you're languishing. The word languishing is key. You'll see it here in the psalm. So number one, here's the first lesson. Tell him all your sorrows. This is verses 1 to 3 and verses 6 to 7. Look at verses 1 to 3. Tell him all your sorrows. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O oh Lord, how long? 
So David begins this psalm with honesty about his condition. He is not glossing over his state of heart here. He is languishing, he says. And we don't know the specifics. That's the glory here in the psalm. David generalizes his languishing enough as he publishes the psalm for others to invite us who also are languishing into the situation here with him. Have you ever lived through a season of life, however brief or extended, when you felt like you were languishing? Maybe you feel right now, like whatever the circumstances in your life, you feel like you are languishing, that you are losing your vitality, that you are growing weak. It's like a plant in these hot weeks of July that has gone days on end without water, languishing. Like a man stranded on a desert island who has nothing to eat. Like a teenager who just moved to a new town and goes week after week after week at a new high school with no friendships. Like a job where you know you're not wanted, that you're not appreciated, and it seems like they're trying to manage you out so that you'll surrender first before they have to pony up on the severance. David is languishing. Enemies are set against him. They are watching him. They lurk, and they're waiting for him to fall, and it is taking a toll on him. And what does David do? He brings it to God. It's okay to begin with where you're at, to be honest with God about your languishing, about your moaning, about your grief, about your weeping. God can handle your honest articulation of your pain. And not just some of it, but all of it, all the way down. In effect, God says to us, as Aslan said to Shasta in The Horse and His Boy, tell me all your sorrows. It's a good line from C.S. Lewis in The Horse and His Boy. God says this to us, in effect. Tell me all your sorrows. He can handle them. Aslan is big enough to handle your honest articulation of your sorrows, even when you're partially at fault in the pain you're experiencing. Notice here in Psalm 6 that David does not plead his own righteousness in his prayer to God. Don't think he won't. He will do it next week in Psalm 7, verse 8. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. So in a particular situation, David can be blameless in that instance and complete and complete to God based on his integrity. But he doesn't do that in Psalm 6. David knows with whatever issue is at stake in Psalm 6, he's not been blameless. He is guilty in some measure, and so he pleads for grace here, not for justice. He knows himself to be at fault. He has sinned. And so he deserves and he embraces God's rebuke and discipline. And he begs that God's rebuke and discipline be in love, not anger. That it be in grace and not in wrath. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, don't rebuke me. He doesn't say that. He says, rebuke me not in anger. He receives the rebuke. He takes the discipline. He knows he needs it. But he wants a rebuke of love, not a rebuke of anger. He wants it to be the discipline of grace, 
not the discipline of wrath. David says here that his languishing is such that his bones are troubled. What does that mean? Bones are troubled. The bones are the deepest and strongest part of the human frame. And so to communicate that he's in pain, he's troubled in his bones, is to say that he's troubled in the deepest way. Our modern English would be like, I'm rocked to the core. This is David's way of saying he's rocked to the core. And then to that, he adds that his soul is greatly troubled. So his languishing is not just physical. I think it's wrong just to assume this is some kind of physical sickness. It's not just physical suffering here. It's not mainly physical. It is a spiritual languishing, an emotional languishing that he's experiencing. And the key question that he asks in faith is the question that those who are languishing in faith can and should ask. He says in verse 3, Oh, Lord, how long? How long will it be? And notice the significance here. He's not saying, he's not asking if God will rescue him. It's about when the rescue will come. It's not will God rescue him. It's how long till he does. And this is often the tension for us as God's covenant people. We have come to know who he is. He's a gracious God and merciful, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet, as we might expect, his timing is not our timing. God's clock is not set to human time. We want him to act and to save us according to his timetable in our heart of hearts. But in the pain, we wait, we languish in the pain. And in that tension, David and also we are not sure what to ask often. So David seems to trail off, I think, in verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long till what? Till God does what? What does he want God to do? What's the verb, David? How long till what? I don't think he's quite sure what to pray. He just wants to be delivered from this season of difficulty that drags on and on and on as he languishes. Which makes this psalm such a good model for us when we find ourselves languishing. If you're in that season right now, I commend Psalm 6 to you. When you come into a season like that, which you will in a fallen world, I commend Psalm 6 to you. For a season of life when the pain and uncertainty and difficulty and conflict just seem to go on and on and on. And you haven't given up faith yet. You know God's heart. Deep down, you know it's just a matter of time. And yet, it goes on another day and another week and another month and another year. And you say, how long? Knowing that God will deliver you in the end doesn't take away your languishing in the present. Look at verses 6 and 7. It's where David says more about his languishing. That's where we get the foes too. He adds another picture here in verses 6 and 7, how deeply he is distressed. This is, this is significant. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. 
It, go, it grows weak because of all my foes. Now, you may remember from a few weeks ago, as Pastor Joe preached to us on Psalm 3, when we talked about David's weeping. And 2 Samuel 15, 30 mentions his weeping when his son Absalom rebelled against him and David's driven out of the capital city of Jerusalem. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, 2 Samuel 15, 30, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. Now, maybe this is a psalm for that season. David would have felt in that context, he would have felt partially at fault as well as severely mistreated by foes. When whether Psalm 6 is for the situation or not, we don't know. And that's good for us as a model for our our situations. So in Psalm 6, even though David is partially at fault in some sense, whatever the circumstances, his foes are using his weakness as a time to attack him. So David's not without sin, but nor is he the chief offender. He is now a victim in some sense. Other sinners have made the occasion of his sin into an opportunity to sin against him. Which is not the case by any means in every victim scenario. Don't assume that that in every victim is in the same case that David is in in Psalm 6. But it is often the case in a fallen world. Don't miss the other side as well. In a fallen world teeming with sinners that we are sinned against without ourselves being blameless. It's very common. And so David's pain and confusion here is great. And I don't think his words are an exaggeration. If anything, they're probably an understatement of the languishing he's going through. And in such a whirlwind, God doesn't say to David, just grit it out, put on a smile, and sing a happy song. God says, tell me all your sorrows. I can handle them. He sees and he knows our disorientation, and he doesn't sweep it under the rug. But he acknowledges it with the most common kind of psalm in the Bible, in his inspired songbook. And he calls us, though, to more than just rehearsing our pain. This is the start. Tell me all your sorrows is the beginning. But God calls us beyond that now to a second point. So number one, tell me your sorrows. Second, put him at the center. This is a remarkable shift here in verses four to five. Sandwiched right here in the middle of David's expressions of his languishing in verses one to three and verses six to seven, we have verses four to five. And this is the heart of the psalm. This is the hinge And this is the special offering for us this morning. I want you to pay careful attention here to verses 4 and 5. This is so important in our model of how to pray when we're languishing. And we all know languishing to some degree or other. We know the turmoil of being sinners and living with the consequences of our sin. And we know, in some sense, the pain of being sinned against and being the victim and the felt injustice of that, whether we've been partially at fault or not. But where do we go when we're in that situation? When you recognize, when you come to consciousness, I'm languishing. Where do you go? Look at verses 4 and 5. This is how David prays. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death... 
there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? It's a remarkable way of praying. And this is, this is the hinge. This is the pivot in the psalm. This is the spark that sets the kindling of his disorientation ablaze in the fires of reorientation. And how does David reorient? He moves from his own need to God's own God-centeredness. From David's need to God's own God-centeredness, God's own passion for his glory. He pleads for God's faithfulness to his covenant. He appeals to God's own steadfast love, which he promised under the terms of his covenant with his people. David appeals to God's own heart to exalt himself in the praises of his people. He doesn't appeal to God's heart for David. He appeals to God's heart for God. Sheol was the place of the dead in the Old Testament. When the body and soul were separated, Sheol was the waiting place for God's final judgment. Sheol is the place that Jesus goes in spirit after the cross and liberates the righteous. So David is saying, in Sheol, I won't have my body. I won't praise you. I won't have a voice. I won't have a mouth. There'll be no praise in Sheol. And so the argument is, God, save me so that you don't go without my praise. Save me, God, for the sake of your praise. He appeals to God's own desire to be praised in the mouths of his people. And so as David appeals to God's own honor and praise in verses 4 to 5, there is a profound reorientation that happens in his soul in this very appeal. As he told God all his sorrows, David's focus has been, inevitably, on himself. That's okay. He's in distress. I'm languishing. Heal me, my bones, my soul. And it's not wrong for David to acknowledge and voice his pain. In fact, that's where he needs to start. It's a good starting place. He needs to own his disorientation. But then, it's so important, then he needs to lift his eyes to who God is. He needs to reorient himself on the rock-solid foundation of God's own allegiance to himself, upon which David can stand and bank on his deliverance. And as God gives David this wherewithal to move beyond his own languishing and to plead to God on God-centered terms, this right here in the plea is where David's deliverance begins. It doesn't mean that it comes all at once. There may be much more languishing ahead for David and for us, but at least his feet have found a rock in God's allegiance to himself and his commitment to his own praise, which is the glory of his name and the joy of his people come together in that. So number one, tell him all your sorrows. Number two, put him at the center. And then finally, Number three, know that he hears. This is verses 8 to 10, which are so remarkable. Know that he hears. Now listen for the new tone here in verses 8 to 10 and compare David's newfound confidence here at the end 
with his languishing in verses 1 to 3. Observe the change on the other side of the God-centered hinge of verses 4 and 5. We want to have this confidence in our lives. I want verses 8 to 10. I want to live verses 8 to 10 in my soul. I know you do as well. Look there. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Remember in verse 3, David said he was greatly troubled. And now in verse 10, he says his enemies, the foes, will be greatly troubled. In verse 3, we saw David asking how long. And now in verse 10, he remembers that God often delays. His timing is not the same as ours, but God has heard all along. He has accepted the prayer all along, and he will respond in his perfect timing. And when he does, he may very well do so suddenly, in a moment, he says, in the final words of the psalm, that God may be storing up prayers, storing up prayers, storing up prayers, accepting the prayers, hearing the prayers, and in a moment, he acts in deliverance for you, to remove you from your languishing. But here's the important question for us. How does David know that God has heard him and that he will indeed respond and that it's just a matter of time? Where does David's newly expressed confidence come from in this psalm? I don't think it's from a new revelation, as if David finished verse 7, and then God whispered some new confidence into his soul. And he's like, oh, yes, burst of confidence. Write verses 8 to 10 now. I don't think it's that. And it's not a delay in time, as if he wrote verses 1 to 7, carefully crafted them, had them ready, and then waited a few days, weeks, months. God answered his prayer. Then he comes back in confidence, and he appends verses 8 to 10. This is one psalm. This is all together. This is the movement of a soul in a matter of moments. The answer is that the psalm itself, the act of prayer itself, the rehearsing of the truth of God's commitment to his people and being freshly honest about a spiraling self and God's commitment to his glory, that's the channel through which the grace of faith comes. The confidence, the hope comes to David through this prayer itself. His spiritual sanity is restored in the midst of his disorientation in the very act of addressing God and remembering who he is and repeating God's promises from his covenant. Laments like this are not exercises in wallowing or making things worse. Rather, they are exercises in Godward reorientation and the renewal of spiritual sanity. Prayers like this are means of God's grace through which we move in spirit from disorientation to reorientation. And then we have the strength to endure the external circumstances that continue. There's no removal of the circumstances in this psalm. 
There's a change in David. There's a change in his soul. The question for you then, how are we restoring our spiritual sanity if we're not praying and if we're not rehearsing God's promises to us in his word? And if you are in a season of languishing, have you considered whether your present weariness might stem in some measure from neglecting his promises and being prayerless. But you might say, all right, this is all well and good for David. All right? David knows that God hears him. David knows he accepts his prayer. He's the king of God's people. David's special. God heard his prayers. But I'm just a footman. I am literally one in a billion professing Christians in the world right now. How do I know that God receives my prayer? Can I say with David and be confident that the Lord has heard, the Lord accepts my prayer? Can I have anything close to the confidence that David has in verses 8 to 10? And my answer is, You can have every bit as much confidence as David has. In fact, in Christ, you can have more. Jesus Christ is great David's greater son. And he is the total fulfillment of all that David embodied and all God promised to David as the king of his people. Jesus is not great because he was descended from David. David is great because his descendant is Jesus. And at the very heart of Christianity is one of the most remarkable realities in the universe. That when we believe in Jesus, when we trust him as our savior and as our Lord and as our treasure, that faith by the power of the spirit joins us to Jesus so that we are in him. Not only does our sin become his, and he puts it to death on the cross, but also all that is his becomes ours by virtue of our union with him by faith. And so the question about our confidence this morning, that David, that that God hears our prayers and that God accepts our prayers, it is not a question about how we compare with David. It's a question about how David compares with Jesus. And if God heard the sound of David's weeping and heard David's plea and accepted his prayer, will he not hear and accept the prayers of those who are in his son through faith in Jesus? He will. As sure as God heard and accepted David's prayers, even more so, Even more so does he hear and accept our prayers in Jesus. So if you are languishing this morning in depression, in your family, in your job, whatever circumstances, if you are languishing and you are in Jesus and you have cried out to him and you've asked, how long? Know that he has indeed heard your prayer. He accepts your prayer. And that doesn't mean that he's going to answer immediately. 
And it doesn't mean he's going to answer in exactly the way that you would want him to answer. He typically does not. If he did, there would be little point in reorienting our souls. We're reorienting the soul for the duration of our languishing. And remember, this psalm was not written after David was through his time of languishing. The psalm is from the midst of his pain. The psalm is from the midst of his languishing. The rescue had not come yet. David's confidence didn't wait until he had external outward deliverance. David's hot confidence and hope came in the midst of his trial and suffering. And God gave him in that, he gave him the gift of the wherewithal to have confidence in God. God's timing is not ours, but he will deliver in his perfect timing. And he may well do so all at once, suddenly, in a moment. So tell him all your sorrows. You can be honest about whatever it is, whether it's your fault in measure, whether you've simply been sinned against, and put him at the center of your prayers, not self at the center, and ask for his name's sake for deliverance, appeal to him on the basis of his righteous pursuit of his own praise, and then know that he hears you in Christ Jesus. As we come to the table this morning, let me add one final simple observation about Psalm 6 as a whole. Eight times, eight, eight times in these 10 verses, David calls God by name. That's the first words in the psalm. He says, oh, Lord. And then verse 2, and then verse 3, and then verse 4, and then verse 8, and then twice in verse 9. And behind that all caps LORD in our English Bible, as many of you know, is God's personal covenantal name in Hebrew, Yahweh. This psalm flows from the mouth of one who is in covenant relationship with God. He knows him personally. David calls him by name. And as we lament the various ways that we languish in our lives, and then this morning as we come to the table, we too can call God by name. And by a name that's even more intimate than Yahweh. We call him Jesus. In Jesus, God hears our prayers and God accepts our prayers. And in the name of Jesus, God invites us here to eat with him. This is a meal mainly for the members of City Church. But if you would say this morning, I claim Christ. I claim him as my savior, my Lord, my treasure. We'd invite you to eat with us. The pastors will come now. We'll distribute the elements. This is indeed all gluten-free bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.